This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is off today. I write a blog called May It Please the Court, which you can find at mayitpleasethecourt.com. And today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be talking about a 31-year-old personal injury lawyer out of Atlanta, Andrew Speaker, who stirred up an international public health emergency when he traveled to Europe after being diagnosed with a drug-resistant form of tuberculosis. Speaker has explained to the media and to other officials that he knew he had TB when he flew from Atlanta to Europe in mid-May for his wedding and honeymoon, but that he didn't find out until he was already there about the severity of his tuberculosis. Despite warnings from federal health officials not to board another long flight, he flew to Montreal and then drove home to the United States for treatment, fearing he wouldn't survive if he didn't reach the U.S. As of today... Uh, Andrew Speaker has been asked to testify before the Senate, and we'll listen to him this morning on CNN, being questioned by Senator Tom Harkin. The House Homeland Security Committee has questioned authorities today about how Speaker, whose name was on a security watch list, got through the border between Canada and the U.S., and a uh, third sputum test has come back negative, meaning the Speaker's tuberculosis is perhaps not very infectious. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about the legal liability associated with this specific case, what can happen to Andrew Speaker on a legal basis. Will he be disbarred or any kind of proceedings against him from the Atlanta Bar Association? And as a lawyer, should he have known better? And we're going to discuss the doctor's liability uh, from the CDC. Did they give him permission to fly? Are they at fault? Did the CDC do their job? Today, we're going to welcome our first guest, uh, Professor Stephen Bainbridge. Uh, Stephen Bainbridge is the William D. Warren Professor of Law at UCLA, where he currently teaches business associations, unincorporated business associations, and advanced corporation law. Professor Bainbridge's blog, ProfessorBainbridge.com, is one of the most widely read political and legal weblogs on the Internet. He recently covered the TB case in a blog entry entitled Flying TB Infected Lawyers' Liabilities. Welcome to the show, Professor Bainbridge. Thank you. Glad to be with you. And our next guest is Robert Klitzman, is a medical doctor. Dr. Klitzman is the Director of Ethics, Policy, and Human Rights Corps of the HIV Center. He co-founded and for five years directed the Columbia University Center for Bioethics and is a member of the Division of Psychiatry, Law, and Ethics in the Department of Psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Mailman School of Public Health. Using interdisciplinary methods drawing on medical sociology, medical anthropology, and medical ethics, he has studied several areas related to HIV and other disorders. Welcome to the show, Dr. Klitzman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Professor Bainbridge, let's start with you. You wrote about Andrew's speaker and the TV scare on your blog. Can you give us your standpoint? Well, I think um, Mr. Speaker's, even if we accept Mr. Speaker's um, version of events as, as accurate, his conduct in deciding to uh, fly after he had been warned not to um, may expose him to tort liability uh, on a number of theories. Um, but, you know, I think uh, 
even setting aside the legal question, the idea that uh, you've been informed that you're infected with a potentially fatal disease and you just fly um, on a commercial airline potentially exposing uh, all of you, the passengers around you, to uh, possible transmission uh, was just remarkably narcissistic and irresponsible. Um, I, I find his behavior uh, puzzling, uh, and uh, whether or not he ends up facing legal liabilities, certainly uh, he um, has not exhibited the kind of judgment um, that one would expect from a lawyer, particularly a personal injury lawyer who knows uh, uh, about the risks of being sued. Um, it, it's quite remarkable. Dr. Klitzman, from a medical standpoint, how do you uh, look at the case? I'm inclined to agree in many ways. Uh, again, there's a problem of uh, he said, she said in this situation, of course, where he is, Mr. Speaker's claiming that he was not told that he was of any danger to others uh, and the uh, CDC and the local uh, health officials in Georgia are saying that they did tell him that. Uh, I am also struck by the fact that even if we say that he, quote, was not told, in other words, even if we uh, um, accept to a degree what he said, there are a lot of questions. He was advised not to fly. Well, there's a question, what was his understanding then of the events if he was advised not to fly, why did he think he was being told that? And he admits he was advised not to fly. So clearly, even by his account, he was being told that something was not right. Uh, moreover, uh, he knew that he was scheduled when he returned from his trip, his wedding, to check into a hospital in Denver to have part of his lung removed. So, and that had all been arranged before he left. So again, he knew that there was a lot going on medically. Uh, he also knew at that point that he had failed, uh, you know, a number of uh, treatments for his tuberculosis, uh, and in fact, more than the number that would warrant a diagnosis of multi-drug uh, tuberculosis, which is whereby you uh, are resistant to two or three drugs. Here, he was resistant to several classes of drugs, as, as I understand it from the press that's uh, on the case. Uh, and so, again, he knew that he had failed several treatments, that they were at least advising him not to fly. Uh, he says that he had, uh, that his father recorded the conversation. Well, if, if he didn't think there was a legal issue, why was he recording the conversation? And then, of course, as I understand it, the AP, the Associated Press, asked to hear the tape and was told uh, they couldn't. So, or that wasn't available, or I'm, I'm not sure of the details, but they weren't able to hear it. So, again, there's a lot of questions here about how much he actually knew and uh, that are problematic. And I, I agree with what was just said, that, that if, you know, if, if you're in Germany, I mean, if you're in Italy uh, and, um, uh, or Greece and are told uh, by the, the CDC, by the federal government, do not get on a plane, and you go ahead and get on a plane, uh, you're going against... Uh, you know, what federal officials are telling you, which is bound to get you into trouble legally. Uh, so I think uh, there, too, there, there are a lot of problems in terms of, of the account that's been given and, and his acting, I think, ethically. Uh, I should say in terms of why he didn't uh, listen, so to speak, or why he heard things wrong, that, that it is, I think, uh, I should say, in his possible defense, 
that we know from physician-patient interactions that uh, patients often don't hear bad news when you give them. When I, as a, as a physician, have told patients, look, you know, it may be cancer or something very serious, we're not know, don't know yet, we're going to run some more tests, uh, you know, patients may walk away and think, oh, there's nothing really wrong with me. They, don't, they haven't found anything bad with me yet, or, or who knows what patients may hear, because patients, of course, are, when, when any of us are being told bad news, are very anxious about it. We may not hear everything accurately. Uh, it does put responsibility on the physician or on uh, the medical authorities in this case to be very clear and to communicate very effectively. And I uh, don't know what kind of communication actually took place uh, in terms of how sensitive it was. Uh, it certainly doesn't sound like it was very effective, at least by his account. Uh, but we know that, uh, you know, one of the responsibilities of the physician is to communicate these issues well. And, again, it's not, we don't know all the facts yet, but it's not clear that happened. I should say I uh, recently uh, finished writing a book which is coming out in October called When Doctors Become Patients, and looking at the experiences of physicians when they become on the, they'll get on the other side and become patients. And they often have trouble hearing what they've been told, and also have trouble often applying what they've learned professionally to their own work. Uh, so perhaps there's a book to be written by someone on when lawyers become patients, uh, because it seems to me that there are a confluence of issues of uh, how much one is responsible for how one behaves and, and how one responds to medical information that's given to one. Professor Bainbridge, there's been some suggestion that he should be disbarred or, or somehow punished by the Georgia authorities. Uh, what's your take on whether his actions amount to something that is, uh, would result in some type of a reprimand? Well, it's hard to see uh, how the Georgia bar could uh, take action against him at this point. Um, in writing about this episode, I reviewed the Georgia uh, rules of professional conduct that are applicable to lawyers. And there's nothing in the Georgia legal code um, that would, for example, uh, permit the bar to punish someone for, say, you know, conduct on becoming a lawyer uh, or conduct that brings the profession into, distri into disrepute. Um, the provisions that deal with things like um, misrepresentations on the part of a lawyer, um, uh, various sorts of lawyer misconduct, are explicitly limited in the Georgia rules of professional ethics to situations in which you are representing a client. And so, for example, if, uh, uh, if I were to tell you a falsehood in connection with uh, my representation of a client, uh, that could get me disbarred. Uh, my lying to you just generally uh, uh, on my own behalf uh, would not. Uh, the only thing I can see in the Georgia uh, rules that would permit uh, any sort of action against him uh, would be if, uh, as a result of his conduct, he were to be convicted uh, of a criminal offense. Under the Georgia rules, a lawyer who is convicted of any type of felony can be disbarred. Uh, a lawyer who is convicted of a misdemeanor uh, may be disbarred if the misdemeanor is one that involves, uh, quote, moral turpitude, where the underlying conduct relates to the lawyer's fitness to practice law. Uh, 
Um, as of yet, there's been no suggestion that uh, Speaker is going to be charged with any criminal offense. Um, and so we're going to have to wait and see uh, whether the government decides to take any sort of criminal action against him, say, for illegally crossing the border. Um, I don't know, and, and I've looked into it some, and I haven't found um, any criminal statute that he violated by flying um, uh, against CDC advice, uh, even assuming that he did uh, fly against CDC advice. So, um, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see whether or not the government decides to charge him with anything. Do you think that any of the doctors that were involved in his case uh, from the local perspective have any potential liability? Well, you know, it's it's hard to see what the, the basis of their liability uh, would be. Um, uh, there are uh, some cases... Uh, dealing with um, uh, mostly prison cases, actually, where there was liability for having allowed um, someone to um, uh, to be exposed to someone who was um, contagious with tuberculosis. Um, I haven't found any cases, and I, I did some research on this. I haven't found any cases where doctors in this sort of situation. Uh, were held liable. Um, it's certainly possible that that someone may try to devise some sort of third-party beneficiary theory uh, under which the doctors had an obligation to the public, uh, particularly the CDC doctors who knew that he had um, this drug-resistant form of TB, um, might have had some obligation. Uh, but then you're going to get into issues of sovereign immunity, um, and, and whether the government can be sued on that sort of ground um, and on what basis. And so it's difficult for me to see a basis for holding the doctors liable at this point. I think there's, there's a much stronger case to be made by the people that were exposed uh, by Speaker, whether or not they come down with DB. Uh, they have a number of theories on which they can go after Speaker himself. Dr. Klitzman, there's a, a large number of United States nationals that travel across the world, and many f people frequently get injured and contract diseases and, and have problems when they're uh, across borders. Uh, speaker was quoted as saying he felt very abandoned when he was contacted by the Centers for Disease Control in Rome and asked to check into a local Italian hospital. What do you understand uh, the CDC's obligation is to deal with him and get him back to the United States, or are they just simply obligated to say take steps to protect yourself, and or do they have any obligation? Those are very good questions. I think they do have an obligation, and again, the question is we don't know exactly what the CDC did in fact say to him. Uh, so. Uh, to my knowledge, as I understand it, there were a number of possible scenarios that the CDC was discussing with him. Uh, there was a question, could he afford for a private jet, he says. that uh, There was a question, could the CDC use its uh, private jet? And as I understand it, they were, quote, discussing that possibility at the CDC. Uh, he was told the U.S. Embassy would help him. So, uh, he has said he was told just check into a local hospital. I, I don't know that that's, in fact, what the CDC said. Uh, and uh, certainly,
certainly that would make one feel abandoned. But again, we don't know uh, all of the details at this point. Uh, I think one of the, just to get back to what uh, Professor Bainbridge was just saying, I think to me the issue is uh, not that the um, the uh, CDC failed in principle in its uh, whether it had an obligation or not to the public, but it was how it was carrying it out. I think given the fact that this is an unprecedented situation with a fairly new disease, uh, which is extremely drug-resistant TB, about which we still don't know very much and we need much more research, uh, but unfortunately is, is probably going to be here for a while, uh, something that we'll be facing. It seems the problem is your bureaucratic inefficiency, whereas, again, as I understand it, the local authorities were in the process of issuing uh, a medical mandate, which they needed before they could then, in fact, uh, quarantine him and uh, you know, the CDC did, in fact, contact the uh, uh, European countries where he was traveling, but not early enough. And, you know, they contacted the local branch of the um, the Homeland Security Office, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems that uh, the uh, officials were, quote, trying, but that uh, for whatever reasons that clearly need to be investigated, there was just a lot of um, bureaucratic red tape or over uh, cautiousness, et cetera. Uh, a few other issues, by the way, that I, that I think are important to mention is one is the, the balance between patient confidentiality uh, and uh, public health. And more broadly, basically, the, I think there's an ongoing tension that exists between civil liberties and public health. Uh, and it's very easy to err one way or the other in either overly protecting civil liberties at the expense of public health or overly protecting public health at the expense of civil liberties. And historically, there have been examples where there have been at least attempts to go one way or the other. Uh, and to, to get it right is a fine balance. So apparently, one of the press reports the other day mentioned that the CDC delayed because they were concerned about his confidentiality, Mr. Speaker's. That is, that they did not want to uh, notify uh, other branches of the U.S. government and did not do so earlier because they were afraid that they'd be violating his confidentiality. And again, I think uh, that shows in some ways a lack of clarification, perhaps misunderstanding of the notion of confidentiality from an ethical and I'd argue a legal perspective, or I suspect so, in that, uh, you know, it's one thing to announce it to the public, say, for instance, that, you know, if the CDC were to say, here's this guy and he, you know, did such and such, but to certainly when it comes to protecting other people's health, if it requires giving over his name, I think ethically that that would make sense to do rather than to withhold the name and not do anything in the interest of confidentiality. So again, we, you know, we normally respect patient autonomy in healthcare until the point at which someone is in danger, is endangering others. Uh, so I think that that is an, another sort of important uh, angle to enter into the discussion that I imagine and I hope the uh, Congress and, and future policymakers will be looking at as they go forward from here. If I could just follow up on that, um, one of the things that's very striking about this from a public policy perspective is the sheer number of government agencies that were in some way involved in this situation. I mean, you had the CDC, um, you had within the CDC their division on, uh, I believe it's called their Global Migration and Quarantine Division. 
um, that was uh, responsible for tracking internationally. You had the domestic CDC. You had Health and Human Services. You had Department of Homeland Security. You had the TSA. Uh, and you had customs. And, and one of the things that this case, I think, demonstrates very conclusively is that uh, despite uh, what Congress did back in 2001 with the, uh, the Aviation Transportation Security Act um, to give the TSA broad authority uh, to protect the transportation system against um, not just terrorism, but also um, precisely this sort of infectious disease scenario, uh, is that we still have this sort of alphabet soup of agencies that have to coordinate uh, together. Uh, and it, what this case demonstrates is that it's very easy uh, for that uh, sort of Rube Goldberg situation that we've allowed to develop uh, to fail uh, simply because one person, the customs agent uh, on the Canadian border, uh, gets it wrong. And uh, I think it speaks to uh, our situation now uh, approaching uh, six years after 9-11 uh, that we still don't have uh, a single uh, czar, if you will, or a single agency that's in charge of protecting our borders uh, and how porous our borders really are as a matter of, of public policy. Um, I think it also raises, and I'm sure the doctor can speak to this in more detail, um, the question of whether these new drug-resistant strands of tuberculosis uh, are going to force us to revisit uh, the whole system of quarantine uh, that existed, uh, I guess, really prior mostly to World War II and the development of of antibiotics for infectious disease and whether, you know, we're going to have to go back to having involuntary quarantines. Uh, and, and that's another, I think, important public policy issue that this case presents us with. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll be back with our guests. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. 
That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit for your continuing legal education. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayitpleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. Bob Ambrosi is off today. We'd like to welcome back Professor Stephen Bainbridge, William D. Warren Professor of Law at UCLA, and Dr. Robert Klitzman, co-founder of the Columbia University Center for Bioethics and an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the university's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Klitzman, I'd like to ask two questions here. One, uh, can you give us a brief description of what really tuberculosis is, how you get it, and how you transmit it? And then... Uh, to follow that up, there's been some discussion about Andrea Speaker's father-in-law, who is a TB specialist at the CDC. Do you think that he should have, his father-in-law should have encouraged his daughter not to be flying with his son and or son new son-in-law? And what kind of exposure does she have to the to the situation? Right, those are important questions. Tuberculosis is a bacteria, and it is spread normally through moisture in the mouth. So if I Bit. If I sing, certainly if I cough, if I speak to you and you're close to me, you may be breathing in some of the uh, moisture from my mouth, and I have uh, active tuberculosis, or the most infectious kind, uh, the tuberculosis, if you look under a microscope at my sputum, will be there. You can see it if you put some stain on the slide. And that's how TB is spread. Now, uh, once you get it, it lodges in the lung and the body tries to seal it off, sort of seal off the area, and, and uh, people often have TB for many years, and it's inactive, and then your immune system could break down, or you might have HIV, for instance, which affects your immune system, or chemotherapy for treatment of cancer, which could uh, decrease your immune system. And in those cases, the TB could become active. Now, part of the confusion on this case, and part of the uncertainty is that uh, if someone is, has TB and is coughing, they're spreading it all over the place. If someone's not coughing, but they're speaking to you and you're sitting on a plane for them, next to them for eight hours and you're breathing in some of their moisture from their mouth, you could get TB. Now, another wrinkle in this situation, so he was not coughing, Andrew Speaker, so it, he was less infectious than if he was coughing all over the place. Another issue is that when you look at the, micros- under, under the microscope at his sputum, you don't see TB. However, if you put it in a Petri dish and culture it, it'll grow TB. So the TB is there in his sputum, but in a much smaller amount than uh, if it was visible to the naked eye, uh, visible with the microscope, rather, to the eye. 
so in, as I understand it, in those cases, it's, uh, about 17% of TB is contracted by people who are culture positive, but not smear positive. That is, it that on culture, it grows out. But if you look at a smear of sputum under a microscope, you don't actually see it there. So it's a smaller amount. So again, it was uh, there. It was uh, uh, could be potentially spread to someone uh, to someone else. Now the odds of that ha- happening are not particularly high, but it could happen. And if it does happen, and particularly if someone is say elderly or has a somewhat diminished immune system, they could get this disease and potentially die from it. So it's a potentially important issue. Now, in terms of uh, um, uh, Mr. Speaker's father-in-law, uh, I don't know exactly what kind of research he does on TB, uh, but presumably he should have known better or should have uh, known about the situation. And again, as I understand it, we don't know if he knew that it was uh, all the details about his son's TB. Was he just getting it third-hand from his daughter? So the details aren't clear. But uh, my sense is that... Uh, uh, if he, in fact, knew that his son had failed uh, several different classes of drugs for TB and was scheduled to go to Denver to part of his lung remove, which is extremely invasive and rare, relatively rare procedure these days uh, for TB, that uh, he should have thought that something was up. Now, the fact that his daughter uh, doesn't have TB, again, speaks to the fact that it's not uh, the, the most infectious situation but it's potential, potentially infectious. It's like if, if someone has, uh, has a bad cold or the flu and they go to the office, not everyone in the office is out sick the next day. Maybe one or two people a few days later are out sick, maybe a few more the following day. Some people never get sick. Some people get sick really bad. Some people don't. So we know that people respond to any infectious agent differently based on their genetics and how healthy they are and, and who knows what else. Uh, the dose to which they're exposed. So, uh, again, that I think speaks to the issue of um, the daughter-in-law uh, the, of, of his daughter, and that uh, again, I, the fact that she had not become infected is not ground to say that Mr. Speaker could not have infected anyone. Uh, but these are important points. I want to come back, by the way, to, to if I can, to Professor Bainbridge's point before the break, which was about some of the policy implications about use of quarantine because I think it, these are very important issues as well. And quarantines had a long and varied history, starting from ancient times when the Romans would create leper colonies, which were basically quarantining people with leprosy uh, so they wouldn't infect others. And the word quarantine actually is, uh, was developed in, um, uh, in the 14th century in Venice, where it, at the height of the plague in 1348, anyone who came into Venice on a ship was uh, was required to stay at anchor for 40 days before they could enter port. And if they had the plague, they would presumably die before then, but they wouldn't infect anyone else. And as I mentioned earlier, through time, how, when quarantines, and who, and and, uh, and why have varied. Uh, so, for instance, in other restrictive measures in terms of their use have varied as well. So in the early days of the HIV epidemic, there were those who said, uh, particularly conservatives from the right, we, that we should take everyone with HIV and put them on an island somewhere, uh, and they would infect others. And uh, in fact, uh, I believe it was William F. Buckley suggested that everyone with HIV be, be tattooed on their arm, that they are HIV positive. And again, people have suggested uh, taking more extreme measures like that, 
On the other case, you have cases of mad cow disease, for instance, where uh, the government uh, dragged its feet in Great Britain for many years, uh, suggesting that infected cows uh, not get to market, and no one really uh, checked on the policy to see if it was being implemented uh, partially or at all. Uh, they only later said that, uh, first they said only uh, um, uh, the parts of the cow that were uh, most likely to have the virus, the brain and spinal cord were not allowed to go to market. And they finally said any part of the cow was not allowed to go to the market. And uh, as another example there, I think where the government was was clearly too slow to respond to an inf- a new infectious threat. And these are hard things to know how to do. Dr. Uh, Klitzman, let me interrupt you for a moment yeah. here. It's time for us to wrap up and get some final thoughts. And let me turn to Professor Bainbridge and kind of uh, follow up a little on your comment about HIV and tattooing. And, and uh, as you give your final thoughts, Professor Bainbridge, and your contact information, can you address whether you think this is going to be a scarlet letter for, Bain, for uh, uh, speakers or whether you think that he's going to ultimately get more business out of the situation? Well, I doubt whether he'll get more business out of the situation. Um, but our culture increasingly um, puzzles me. We um, we seem to celebrate people that uh, that a rational culture might uh, either ignore or perhaps hold up for shame. So, so who can say? But I would hope that that um, uh, we recognize that speaker's conduct was in fact shameful uh, and not rewarded. Now, um, and your heart goes out to the people who are were uh, sitting next to speaker on the airplane. I mean, we've all, I'm sure, been in situations where uh, either for yourself or a loved one, you were uh, sweating out, uh, uh, waiting while uh, medical test results were coming back, and, and that feeling of uh, nerves and, and um, anxiety uh, that the people that speaker exposed to this disease, uh, you know, your heart just goes out to them. And, and one hopes that, um, that they will have their day in court. If you'd like to follow up on, on my take on these issues, uh, I blog at uh, www.professorbainbridge.com, and um, I've got a couple of posts up there uh, about the, uh, the speaker case, and certainly I would welcome uh, your listeners to visit professorbainbridge.com. Thank you very much. Dr. Klitzman, can you briefly give us a, uh, your final thoughts and wrap up with your contact information? Yes, I think there are going to be a lot of very important policy questions, in addition to everything that, that Professor Bainbridge said, which I agree with. Um, uh, very important policy questions in upcoming uh, weeks, months, and years about new infectious threats and how legally and ethically we want to respond as uh, physicians, as lawyers, as professionals, as citizens, as potential patients. Uh, these are very complex issues. We don't want to go too far one way or the other, either having governments that drag their feet or governments that overreact either. Uh, I should say I've just written about some of these issues in uh, a couple of books if people are interested, and I'd be happy to talk to people or contact, uh, to have people contact me. Uh, one is a book called The Trembling Mountain, a personal account of Kuru cannibals and mad cow disease based on studies I did of uh, infectious disease Kuru in New Guinea that uh, and how people respond to that. And I've also written a book, Mortal Secrets, Truth and Lies in the Age of AIDS, about how individuals look at their responsibilities when having an infectious disease. 
which they can spread to others and how people decide uh, what to do about that and how policymakers and physicians uh, find themselves in very difficult ethical and legal issues when it comes to deciding how to prevent someone who is a potential uh, threat to, represents a potential threat to others in terms of infectious disease, how, what the role of the state should be in uh, infringing on that person's autonomy. And I just uh, underline the fact that these are difficult issues that uh, hopefully we as a polity will be able to think about and address in, in the most sensible way possible as we move forward because of both this and other infectious diseases. This is we had SARS, bird flu, mad cow disease, now this, and there'll be other ones. And as the world gets to be a smaller place, unfortunately, we'll be forced to deal with these issues more and more. So, again, just a word of caution to all of us as we move forward. Uh, Dr. Klitzman, could you please give us your email so that our listeners can reach you? Yes. It's rlk2, just number two, at columbia.edu. Well, thank you very much. Today's guests, uh, Professor Stephen Bainbridge from UCLA and Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. We sincerely appreciate your involvement today. Lawyer to Lawyer will be back next week with Bob Ambrosi. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrosi and Jake Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.